In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. I'm here again with Paul O'Sullivan. Uh, how are you, Paul? Going very well, thank you, Scott. Yourself good? Yeah, very well. Okay. Um, today we're going to talk about the seventh of the Ten Commandments. This one it can be found in Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, this seems like a fairly straightforward commandment, doesn't it, Paul? Yeah, yeah but, it says what it means, yeah. Yeah, but adultery is a word that we don't really use that frequently these days in our society, do we? So what, what is the biblical definition of adultery? What does that word really mean? Well, there is a universal, if you like, definition, a standard across all cultures, and it's biblical as well, um, which is strictly defined as unlawful sexual intercourse with married people. Now, there might be a word here and there different, like with a married person or whatever, but that's it. And, of course, the key word there is unlawful. You think, no, it should be sexual intercourse. Now, the key word is unlawful. It depends on what that means. You see, in the Bible, it was lawful for Abraham's wife, Sarah, to give her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham to have a child because she was barren, Sarah, and so this handmaiden, Hagar, was a surrogate mother. Now, that was a lawful thing to do as far as the lineage, if he, and especially Abraham being promised children, and she couldn't have children. So obviously he thought, well, this is what we're allowed to do. He did it. But in most Western countries, there's no kind of law against adultery, but it is unlawful for somebody to have two wives. That's called bigamy. Now, in Australia, before 1975, adultery was grounds for divorce. It's no longer grounds for divorce. So the law comes into a lot. There are a lot of legal ramifications. And there are still today legal definitions of adultery in the United States, in some states, uh, North Carolina, Minnesota and Virginia. An attorney was prosecuted for adultery in Virginia in 2001 and had to pay a fine. So lawful can change, but what does not change, has never changed and will never change is the spirit of adultery. And remember, that's what Jesus always used to bring about in so far as unfolding what the commandment really meant when he had an opportunity. He would say, the law says this, and then he'd go into the spirit of it. And, and he does that in this commandment, again, on the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 5, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire to have her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Mm. So this didn't actually require a physical act of adultery. And Jesus really raised the standard, didn't he? Absolutely. Beyond just, oh, well, you legally committed adultery through a physical act to, hang on, it's more to do with inside your heart. Yeah, and they would never have been confronted with this before because they were all about external appearances. Yeah, so it would have been quite a, a difficult thing for them to listen to, wouldn't it? Because I think so. Even if they did have adulterous thoughts, they would not have considered themselves to be transgressing the law. No. Up until that point. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So relationships is a feature of all the commandments and they all have to do with relationships and this one certainly does. But it looks like this also has to do with wrong desires that people have in their hearts or in their minds. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. There's a point here where you have to take one step back and say, well, what's the difference between temptation and sin? You know, a person can be tempted. So what is this idea of having a desire, this unlawful desire to have her who's already committed with, in his heart, he's already committed adultery, only the person being confronted by this would know that there was some kind of a purposeful agenda there, like in the heart, if, if you like an obsession or some kind of purposeful design in mind to do that. Or because, acting on a temptation. Or acting on a temptation. Yeah, and pursuing yeah. that in your own mind. Precisely. Yeah. We've got to use common sense in the sense that if we're going to look at the fact that everybody gets tempted, then we have to know that temptation is not a sin. Otherwise, we confuse people. Mm. Well, even Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in all things. Mm. Well, this had to be one of them. Mm. So, And um, if he wasn't tempted, he couldn't have overcome sin. Precisely. That's a good point. Mm. So it's a matter of control, self-control. And it's a matter of knowing what commitment means and faithfulness and in your life experience. So that this goes pretty deep into that area, mm. life experience of relationship and commitment. What Jesus did in that scripture, it's more than just kind of being like the thought police. He was dealing with this whole sphere of unfaithfulness or infidelity, embedded wrong desires that are part of the fabric of, of a person's thought processes and excessive self-indulgence because adultery has got a lot to do with a person indulging themselves, being obsessed with, say, total self-gratification at the expense of commitment to a relationship. So that has got a lot to do with that. In fact, that self-indulgence part is one of the biggest factors that drives the others. We're supposed to be talking about being committed to another person and their needs. And there's no good saying, oh, well, this is all about my needs, <laughs> nobody mm. else's, so I've got to indulge myself. Yeah, so that comes into it quite a bit too. Mm. Well, the culture today is quite different from the culture of the past, even the recent past, isn't it? Because society has changed standards and adapted uh, to a more freedom style of culture. In that sense, it treats adultery more lightly than a couple of generations ago even, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So when I said there was a strict and traditional definition, even universal and biblical, it might seem to imply that concern about adultery today is not really a big deal. Even though what you said is true, there's a freedom as to what you can allow yourself to do. But there is still a real concern because of what adultery does to people. And that's a big deal still. 
The spirit of adultery is still alive and well. People still get just as hurt and they experience guilt and shame. But as you said, today's culture gives them greater liberty for self-indulgence than in generations ago. So how do those two things go together? Well, what the liberty and permissiveness does, it allows more opportunities for this kind of thing to occur, but that doesn't stop the destruction that happens in relationships. That's just as relevant to today's culture as ever. In fact, there's a report that tracks what it calls I-fidelity, like internet fidelity, and that's about staying true to one's partner in this age of social media and technology. And that's a fairly recent report dealing with online infidelity. And this was produced collaboratively um, by the National Marriage Project, the University of Virginia, you know, where that guy got, got fined for committing adultery. And it involved 2,000 adults, which were equally represented by married people, people living together, and single people. They all did this survey. And overall, the study found that most people actually shunned behaviours that could be viewed as infidelity. They just didn't like it. Mm, still important to them. It was very important to them. And they strongly supported faithfulness. You know, I've heard young people in their groups, you know, these are kids that have just left school. Like I've met some in the workforce that talk about they're not pleased with, say, Charlie because of the way he treated Sarah, say, and he gets shunned because of his behaviour. They're not even married. Mm. So people take to heart the effect of this infidelity. But this I-fidelity was online fidelity, which has got another layer to it these days that generations ago didn't exist. Well, it gets murky because you don't know where the lines are. You don't know who's doing what. And especially with the Generation X and the Millennials, who are more likely to engage in online relationships, they were owning up to online fidelity mm. a lot more than older generations were. So the conclusion was that it was easy to get away with it. Mm. And so that blurred the danger of putting your committed relationship at risk. The because person. you may not get discovered, right? No, you may not get discovered. Yeah, because because online right. you can have a direct communication with somebody without even meeting them. Yeah. And so you, it's not as easy potentially to get caught. That's right. Yeah. People would think nobody's going to know I'm not hurting anybody. However, what was getting hurt was the meaning of commitment in that relationship. And that might sound subtle, but that really is so obvious because Ten Commandments about relationships. Mm. Seventh Commandment hits it smack in the heart about faithfulness and commitment to relationships. That's where we're looking. And it, so it seems to me that everybody in relationships, like between male and female, where you've got the spirit of adultery happening, you get a kind of a relational morality that, that everybody puts their hand up for. And they may not even be religious because they're not saying, oh, that's a sin. But they are saying that this act of unfaithfulness damages the integrity of the relationship and the individual themselves. They see it happening in people. And then there's the partnership, then there's family, of course, and then community and the world. Now, people are not blind. They see all this happening. Well, they see it happening even in movies today, right? So yeah. it's very pervasive. Yeah, well, that is modelled very well in movies. In fact, there's hardly a movie that doesn't highlight adultery. But what I've seen that movies do in their plots, they highlight the pain and the relational confusion and the emotional damage. So 
they're still on song, really. They're tracking what the spirit of adultery does to the human soul and to relationships. And it's the heart of the plot of almost every drama. Mm. And, and if that's not the bestseller, then the previous commandment that we've just done, the sixth commandment regarding anger and violence in relationships and killing and murder will probably come in second place or maybe they're equal first. But coming back to commandment seven, it is a big deal and it covers many more confusing plot outlines. It's not just sex. Commandment seven and relationships and commitment, it doesn't cover in the spirit of adultery, only sex. It covers what breaks commitment to relationships. Things are driven by excessive self-indulgence that isolate a person, not because they're angry with anybody, just isolates them because they cannot be fulfilled in a relationship. And so you get things like drug and substance abuse, addictions of all kinds, emotional stress, all of these things are covered in commandment number seven because it's this downward spiral of somebody being overtaken by something that isolates them into a self-obsessed behaviour. And so that's at the core of all of these. When we look at society, if you sum it up financially, like say it's the economy, stupid, these are incredibly expensive problems. I mean, you think of the billions of dollars that are going into the repair of all of this. Mental health issues and emotional stress and substance abuse and addiction. Or suicides. Or suicide. murder. Yeah, suicide murder. <laughs> Bad movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the families, the communities, the entire globe. So when we get to Commandment 7, we see how the relational wheels really start to fall off in our society. Mm. You mentioned the comment of Jesus in amplifying this commandment and that it deals with those three things of infidelity, wrong desires and excessive self-indulgence. So at what point does commitment come into all of this? Well, I know I've mentioned it a few times. What I really want to say about commitment is that it's very misunderstood as to what its real meaning is. Commitment sounds like yeah, well, I've joined the club, you know, I've got my badge, I'm committed, I pay my dues. Commitment in relationships is different to commitment to a cause or anything else. We're talking about commitment in relationships. You see, you can be committed to a cause, you can do all the right things, and the cause is not going to come back and The cause cry. doesn't care necessarily, no, but the no. other person in a relationship cares very deeply. That's right. You can feel, oh, well, I'm doing my bit for the cause, everything else in the cause here is not going to weep. Lack of commitment in a relationship is like adding someone to your life like you would add something to your life. That's a bad relational wobble, like treating a person like an object. So this is where the seventh commandment can be called a, a turning point. A person begins to treat other people as objects for self-gratification rather than as people of worth and value and with feelings. It might seem subtle, but that becomes very apparent. After a while, you see people using other people, and those people have got feelings and worth. So this becomes the turning point if that starts to become a way of life, behaviour in a person. So that means that something must have gone wrong somewhere prior to this commandment, and that's commandment number six. Mm. And that dealt with the value of life and relationships, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. Did I cause an offence? Relationships have to matter 
because people matter and their sense of dignity matters and people's feelings matter. And so by failing in commandment six, where a person becomes angry, unforgiving or vengeful, and then eventually starts to isolate themselves and, and separate out of relationships, then you get this kind of attitude of, you've got to meet my needs. And if you don't, I'll find another way to have them met. There you've got the breakdown. That is understanding the real meaning of commitment or lack of commitment. So a person can be satisfied when there is mutual selfless love in a relationship. Now I might be being idealistic here, but we're talking about the word of God and I really have to set the bar high. Even if none of us can reach these heavenly heights, they're there. And by the grace of God, I believe we can be led into the experience of this because of the love of God for us. And it's the standard that's set for us, It is the standard that's set. I mean, God doesn't say, oh, look, do your best, doesn't matter, because he is about relationships, and the commandments are there for that. So when there's mutual selfless love in a relationship, there's a satisfaction. That kind of love satisfies a person. I mean, it satisfies God, for goodness sake. He says, that will do me. Oh, yeah, but I want you to see my performance. Yeah, okay, that's good too. I'll clap that. <laughs> but what satisfies me is the fact that you love me mm. because I love you and I'm looking for your response. But if a person can't enter into that and they can't be satisfied, they will opt for being gratified because there's a gap there. It's like something in the senses, in the soul. It's a need. Now, being gratified is not a sin. I mean, there's nothing wrong with moderate self-gratification. Otherwise, you wouldn't eat any nice cheese or wine or, or lovely food. <laughs> you wouldn't bother. But it becomes a problem when gratified becomes a substitute for satisfied in a mutual selfless love relationship. That's the slippery slope. That's a relational problem that can start very early in life. It's not like, well, now I've, I'm grown up and I've got a relationship. All of a sudden, I can't be satisfied with love anymore. That's, that would have started perhaps in early childhood. If the love and affection needed in a child's life was somehow neglected. And I'm not saying that that would be purposefully neglected by parents. But I also know guys that can be workaholics or people that have to travel and, and can't get to be with their kids. And nobody wants to do that purposely in order to ignore, but we, all of us at times have to make choices because we've got to be productive. That means that we're missing special time with the people that we love. So a sensitive child could feel, oh, well, I got blanked out there, did I? It depends just on what the circumstances are. It's what happens to the child that counts. If the child then seeks ways to gratify this need, and they've all got different ways to get their kind of comfort, emotionally and physically, they'll find them because the body and the soul is there actively saying, feed me, please. I want to be satisfied and secure and comfortable. I want to be soothed. Well, there's no kind of love there doing it at the moment. Oh, well, this works. You know, I'll eat. Or it plugs the hole. It plugs the fills hole. the gap. Yeah. Temporarily, anyway. And it can be, yeah, anything. So I'm talking about a sensual thing like the senses, feeling that. And it can be found in sensual gratification or non-sensual gratification. 
And sensual gratification is a kind of comfort that is a physical pleasure that's used as a substitute for loving relationship. And so you can see how early on you're organising unwittingly this thing that can happen in a marriage, right? So sensual gratification can be sexual too or non-sexual. So sensual, we're talking about eating and things like that. That's not sexual. So I'm not talking about a kid getting involved in sexual gratification. I mean, there may be early adopters there too, but the fact is you've got these things branching out into all kinds of needs to be met by self-gratification. That is big mm. as far as I'm concerned. Well, even more so in our online society, and we were talking about online relational infidelity earlier, but what about non-relational pornography? A lot of people might justify the use of pornography saying, well, it doesn't hurt anyone else, is this part of Commandment 7? Yeah, yes. In fact, if you want to talk about the sexual area of self-gratification, that probably tops the list because it's an addictive behaviour and that's a problem. Again, we'll get into addictive behaviours because that becomes part of a cycle of self-gratification and the drive, you know, of indulging oneself. But what that addictive behaviour does with pornography, it allows a person to isolate themselves. Like you said, it's not hurting anybody else, but they're isolating themselves. And that's, again, commandment number six, without all the anger and frustration, it is just you're bringing this upon yourself by isolating yourself to be gratified instead of to engage meaningfully in fulfilling relationships and be satisfied. And so that really is at the top of the list as far as the online relational infidelity <laughs> and commandment seven. But still in the area of sensual gratification and outside the sexual area are found things like drug abuse and overeating, alcoholism, prescription drugs, uh, narcotics, stimulants. They're all there because they're doing something quite amazing in the body, in messing with the hormonal system. They mess with the area in the lower part of the brain where there is a dopamine release, which is what cocaine excites, a dopamine response which is the behaviour that, that enhances the sense of being motivated. So mm. when somebody's uh, had a line of cocaine and they go to work, they would make the best coffee, you know, in the coffee shop. They'd be there loving everybody, highly motivated to do their work. But that becomes, again, an, it's a substitute for engaging meaningfully in a real relationship. It's a high. That can seem like a private habit, and it doesn't involve causing harm to other people. But if people get into this and get caught in the trap of it, the cycle of it, they're destroying themselves physically and emotionally and sometimes mentally and their families and everyone else in their world exactly. And I, I deal with this quite a bit, both mm. in the pharmacy and as a pastor in the church. Yeah. I've got a church full of addicts, but I have people who have got kids and families and see in their histories what has happened because of this. And there are some tragic stories. And they're lovely people. They're not out to try and mess other people's lives up. But this kind of thing happens. 
that's still in the area of sensual gratification and it's outside sexual gratification. But this area of non-sensual gratification that we just briefly mentioned is a subtle form of self-gratification and it's not to do with drugs or alcohol or sensual things, stimulants or anything that messes with the body or even relational feelings in that sense. But there's a a non-sensual self-gratification that occupies itself with harmless, normal, ordinary things, but they're in an obsessive form. And they can be a subject, for instance, the workaholic. That is not being done for pleasure. That's being done because there is a need to busy oneself with something that takes over and brings a sense of fulfilment in some way. And even a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose. Like there's the obsessive sporting fanatic, uh, the compulsive hobbyist. There's the religious obsessive. Now, I'm involved in every one of them to a normal degree. (laughs) I can be a bit of a workaholic. I love sport. I'm into spirituality and religion. And I don't know if I've got any hobbies. I think probably doing theological studies and stuff like that is a bit of a hobby. But I, I do like to get busy with things. But I can see when these things are excessive in a person, they get exercised at the expense of a relationship. Mm. All, it's all the seventh commandment. I mean, you've got to put something somewhere. Everything fits in life into a commandment. Where does that fit? Fits here. Mm. Mm. Doesn't fit into telling lies. No. Or stealing. It's the seventh commandment. Mm. Yeah. So they don't seem to be committing adultery, but they're weakening the bonds of relationship. They're putting their own obsession or fixation in front of people who want to be near them or dear to them. And sometimes those people that are near and dear say, well, I'm giving up. The competition's too strong. (laughs) They've taken up another life, another world. They're on another marathon. Not that there's anything wrong with marathons, but whatever it is, you, you name it, and it can somehow get into this fixation somewhere. Mm. Well, addictive behaviour is very prevalent these days. We've talked about a few examples of that, but what does the Bible say about addictive behaviour? I think it is mapped scripturally in the book of James. And James outlines the process of temptation and sin. We mentioned temptation before. Well, temptation goes into a cycle. I'll read the scripture in James 1, verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. See, there's a pulling factor. There's something pulling, enticing, and there is the desire that is wanting to be enticed. It is fixing on an object and it's being enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it's like, well, here's a relationship, like a marriage. It brings to birth sin. Some, a new thing pops up in the life. Somebody's missed the mark. They've gone for the wrong commitment mm. or the wrong behaviour. Yeah, well, so if somebody doesn't have that desire, they haven't nurtured that desire, even if something's very enticing, they're probably not going to get tempted. Right? That's right. Yeah, right. exactly. So, 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 it's, it's been, so to birth it's been fed. this sin, it's yeah. Been, yeah. It's been fed there, yeah. That's right. So, so people almost position themselves prior to yeah, the enticement. That's true. 
And that's where responsibility comes in as to guarding yourself. In our thought life. In your thought life, yeah. The scripture goes on strangely enough. You've got birth, life and death here. Because it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, there's your life, brings forth death. That's a whopper of a scripture, mm. really. And I call that the sin cycle of wrong desires which leads to a cycle of addiction in any really wrong desire or excessive self-gratification. Look, there's a metaphor I could give. If you take a mother fish teaching her young fish how to eat, there's a worm, dear. Oh, yeah, I get it. It wriggles a bit. Yeah, I know, but you can catch it and eat it. And that's your food. Wonderful. Thanks, Mum. So then the young fish goes out swimming around and it sees a worm in front of it. The thing is... The worm is on a hook. Mm. But mum said, this is, this is it, so I'm going to go for the worm. And it doesn't think that the hook has got any problem. It's not menacing. In fact, it's helpful because the worm can't move. So it eats the worm. And then the next thing, it's in a boat. The fish is enticed. The idea was conceived. It brought forth, uh, missing the mark, wrong target, buddy. You're now in a boat, and when that, was, that act was fully grown, it brings forth death. Mm. Unless you get thrown back in the water, you end up on a plate. If that happens, that's death, right? There's your little cycle. But if that fish gets thrown back in the water, it should know next time, whoops, watch out for that hook, because I don't want to get hooked. Addiction is getting hooked. Mm. And you can be taught to watch out for the hook. The bait itself might be fine. You can pick anything you like and it can hook you. A good thing can hook you into an addiction mm. and then it's a bad thing. When people find comfort there, they keep going back because it's a cycle. What that does in any kind of cycle like that, an addiction, it's short-circuiting the fulfilment that could come through a relationship to love and be loved for who you really are and who you could be, which is the real need in, in a person's life. That's a scripture, and I believe what James is wanting people to see is that when a person is given a re revelation of who they really are, rather than getting wrong desires, rather than aiming wrongly, not hitting the mark, letting sin, which is a deceptive thing, like the hook, that will bring forth death in their life, which is separation. Instead of that, they can get a revelation of who they are, especially in relationship to God through Jesus knowing that they're the object of his deep love and care. So that by the Holy Spirit moving in them, it says the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts, they can be motivated to be the person that they were created to be. They can respond back in love to God. They can be a loving, caring, compassionate person in all their relationships. So God does have relationships as the answer for many of these things that sidetrack a person into separation. Death is like separation. Separated from people, separated from God, separated even from their own selves, their own sense of identity. I reckon Satan has found the weak spot in human nature here in Commandment 7, mm. the commitment to relationships. Well, does something like prostitution come into this category? Well, it, it, it would. I was just going to say something then. Oh, I yeah. thought you were going to say it. Because oh, no, no, you... quite often you go back and say, what about Adam and Eve? <laughs> <laughs> but... Like Satan hit the weak spot in human nature, commitment to relationship. And he told Adam and Eve, 
you don't need this God, you can get knowledge yourself. There's commandment seven, right mm. smack there in kind of in commandment one, I am mm. the Lord your God. See how it drives a wedge? Mm. So what you're talking about? Oh, prostitution. Oh, prostitution. I, I thought that right. might be relevant. Yeah. Well, it is because what well, it looks like sexual gratification and adultery, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. But you know what? I'm inclined to see prostitution. Now, I'm not excusing it, but I'm inclined to see prostitution more as an expression of the next commandment, commandment eight, because it's as much about materialism as about relational infidelity. I think prostitutes really are after the money. I mean, it's a deal. Insofar as you even see it in movies, at least prostitutes are portrayed as being hard and in some ways unfeeling, and yet they're not unfeeling, they're people. But there is something that's entered into the idea of a transaction, transactional relationships, rather than mutual self-giving. Mm. There is taking. Materialism comes really into this. Well, that's if the prostitute's a woman. We presume it's a woman. But the spirit of adultery could be in the man. Mm. So there's a mixture there. Mm. It's a mm. fascinating and, one. And it probably is a combination of motives combination. there, which brings them into that yeah, you know, sure. situation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's the marketplace and there's somebody looking for the same. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm. Um, it seems like this commandment has a lot to do with shallow relationships disguised as genuine relationships. How do you think this works? What comes to my mind with shallow relationships is promiscuity. That does not always have to be sexual. People use promiscuity as but that always involves people sleeping around, having sex. But the actual meaning of the word means to shed your favour around to get the favour you want. You cast a broad net. You actually shower favour on a whole lot of people in a shallow way to get the favour you want. But in a shallow way, because it's an instant thing, there isn't the objective of forming a deep relationship. Now, that can inf involve sex, but it doesn't always have to. People in the marketplace can be promiscuous. They can, they can say that they're wrapped in this product and that product and you're the best and you're the best and then they work out which deal they're going to do because they sort it out and it's like they're not really forming a relational bond with their clients. Mm, well, it's they're, not genuine. It's not genuine anyway. Mm. Yeah, maybe it is a relational bond, but it's, it's not genuine. And then a person can just walk away. The problem is that the promiscuous person uses the person as an object of their self-gratification. They're not valuing the other person for themselves. It's the same thing. The obsession with deep and meaningful relationships, and this is even in the promiscuous person, it looks like they want to be deep and meaningful. They can be at a party and they will all of a sudden find somebody and get into this deep and meaningful conversation and it will look as though they genuinely are concerned about that person. But what they want by exposing you know, their inner thoughts to this new acquaintance, and they're attracted to them, perhaps. There's this flush, I get instant attention, look. And that's like a, a stimulant. It's, it's an addictive thing to that promiscuous person. And it fills a vacuum. And then later on, I mean, they might go out. And all of a sudden, the other person in the relationship says, well, I'm kind of looking for a commitment here. And they say, oh, no, hang on, sorry. I wasn't in this for a commitment. I just needed some relief from something I need on the inside. I need to know I'm admired and liked and loved. I, I do this all the... Well, they won't say that to the person, but that's what they know. They're living like this. And by coming on strong in the early stage, they produce something in the other person, which is like a pressure, 
an obligation to have to respond and that can weigh heavily upon that other person and cause them stress and confusion. Unfortunately, it's happening with young people, probably always has, but it's happening these days, especially when it's so easy to meet a stranger and expect there to be a relationship. And then the technique would go into operation. Mm. But taking relational advantage takes many other forms. One of the tragic ones in the scriptures is when Judas betrayed Jesus. Now you talked about the prostitute, I'm talking about this promiscuous person, but what Judas did, he traded Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. Now where was he at? He was a friend. Jesus said, I'll call you my friends. And that's a deception of a value of loyalty to relationship if there ever was one. Mm. A kind of mixture of needs in poor Judas. He was a zealot. He felt passionately about things. See, he was committed to a cause mm. and Jesus was going to become the means for him to get the cause. He was a zealot. He wanted to overthrow the government. And Jesus had said, I'm going to start a kingdom. Wacko, I'll be in this. Makes friends with him, does all the things he wants gets disappointed, commandment number six, offended, gets angry, and in his kind of vengeance retaliates and trades Jesus in. I mean, mm. that's pretty complex. Well, and he regretted doing it later, he? regretted he? and kills himself. Mm. So that's a pretty profound depth of commandment number seven. Well, in each of the commandments, we've talked about the transformational nature of the commandment. How do you see the transformational nature of this commandment and how does it relate to the one before it, which is don't kill or thou shalt not kill? Before I speak about the positive transformational nature of this one, yeah, I will talk about the one you just mentioned, the negative and harmful consequence to the soul of this commandment, the adultery, which we have mentioned a bit, but I'd like to talk more about it, and the one before it, commandment six, like you said, the saddest consequences for the soul in commandment six, where people get angry, and unforgiving and damage relationships through vengeance or retaliation is that they create a distance between themselves and others. They become avoided by others. If they're, if they're behaving like this, people just think that person's unsafe. And so they get, as a consequence in their soul, this dejected state of isolation. And that is sad. You can see how if somebody in Commandment 6 does this, they would tend to not understand or not believe in the fact that there can be a commitment and that you can say sorry and everything will be okay and you can heal relationships. They've used up their emotional bank account with people by just blowing it all the time and cutting people off and isolating themselves. Now that gets healed for the commandment number six by learning to trust. And we've talked about that last time. Mm. But that of course brings about commandment number seven, doesn't it? But it's a cycle which would create an even greater need for gratification, wouldn't it? If someone's isolated in that kind of situation and, and they have difficulty with the relationships. Yeah, well that's when you brought up the pornography thing because do you know what? I believe that when people are addicted in things like that, the answer is not just trying to say, use self-control. It is develop, well, we actually talked about that, develop relationship, don't live in isolation like that. Exactly, that's good. Yeah, mm. spot on. So now we get to commandment number seven. We talk about what's the consequence for commandment number seven. And um, we go right to the scripture because the judgment of God upon all forms of adultery or betrayal was open shame and disgrace. Mm. Now we mentioned Judas. When Judas's name comes up, what do people think of? 
he betrayed Jesus. That's his notoriety. Mm. It's sad, isn't it? He's mm. famous for it. Yeah. So adultery, its consequence is its own penalty, or its penalty is its own consequence. Open shame. And when God deals with his own people because they went after other gods and betrayed him, he just dealt with them. He spoke very harshly to them, or firmly, put it that way, because Israel would, would have deceived into thinking that other gods could give them the things that gratified their wants instead of being satisfied with the one God who would love them and meet all their needs. And in, in Jeremiah chapter 13, the Message Bible says in verse 26, I'm the one, this is God speaking to Israel, he says, I'm the one who will rip your clothes off and expose and shame you before the watching world. Your obsession with gods, gods and more gods, your goddess affairs, your god adulteries, gods on the hills, gods in the fields. Every time I look, you're off with another god. That's God speaking to Israel. Now there is your open shame. Mm. And God very much viewed his relationship with Israel under the covenant that they had That's right. at, like a marriage. And like he, a marriage, he, dis yeah. he discusses the fact that he's a jealous God. And, yes. and that's where his jealousy comes into play. That's it. Yeah, mm. that's his approach to the relationship. And you can see this open shame happening in, in our society. It's like that's the consequence. When you look at the media, there used to be gossip columns, now it's just headlines <laughs> and um, talk shows and um, cable TV. It's just full of the private details of the lives of all the latest celebrities or politicians. Out it comes. It's voyeurism in a way, isn't it? That's true. And people like to feel a little bit elevated because they don't feel so bad if somebody else is doing all the dirty stuff. Mm. They can feel a little self-righteous. Oh, look at them. What you see a lot is this part of the adultery where people use their position of power, like that taking advantage, you know, of influence. It's almost like a trade to take sexual advantage of another person. Now, take the Me Too movement. And there was legitimate need for this kind of self-indulgent, self-gratifying harmful behaviour to another person's feelings and, and personal life insofar as bringing confusion because it's almost like that promiscuous thing of I will get what I want, you might get an expectation from me because I've got a place of power and the person's not really looking for something but the predator is and they do this and it, it brings the other person into a confused place of shame and so on. And often those things were covered up for years. Now, the, the Me Too movement brought out the fact that this had to be exposed. The thing is, with, as with all movements, they themselves can become weapons of vengeance rather than just opportunities to see corruption exposed and dealt with because not just the person being shamed, but the system being reordered. See, all of these things, it's like so many things that are happening today in movements, you say, oh, well, look, see, this is, those people need to be shown. Yeah, but the system needs to be reordered. And if a system isn't godly, it's going to start cracking open everywhere. And we're seeing it today. Mm. You name it. And it's happened right throughout history. In the military, they used to put people on the parade ground and, and they'd be court-martialed. And In World War II, the collaborators would have their heads shaved. Everything was about open shame. Now, you see today also 
in the behaviour of people in really zealous identity groups who've got a cause. It doesn't matter what the cause is. It can be a good thing. It can mean, you know, be kind to animals. And I believe in being kind to animals. But the cause becomes you they will go and they will smash the windows in a butcher shop because people are eating meat. And, and this becomes like a moral high ground. And what they'll do is they'll shame those who don't hold to their moral high ground. And they will use shame as a weapon to penalise others. Now, yeah, the penalty or the consequence of not being committed, not being faithful, is shame. So they're saying, we have this wonderful ideal. It could be to do with the climate, good things. And we hold to this. And if you're not committed the way we are, we will shame you and we will put shame onto the corporation that is sponsoring you. And so they will have to out you and shame you as the perpetrator because you've come against our issue that is, is a virtue. Now, that is happening everywhere. Mm. And it's using shame as a weapon to penalise others in the community who don't really have much kind of interest in that zealous preoccupation with the stuff. Mm. They just want to see a fair go. They become deniers of a cause and so then they have to be branded as deniers and suffer shame. You can see how lopsided society mm. becomes when the system gets out of order. Mm. Well, often it could be stemmed from a good cause. A good cause. Often it is a good cause and probably there is an issue that needs to be addressed, but it's the way that it's executed by Ex some of these yeah, interest groups true. that yeah. is the issue. Yeah. And so the system there that gets broken down is there isn't a forum for being able to talk about these things sensibly. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to even have another opinion or be scientific about it. You have to get your feelings in line with the other person. That kind of system isn't healthy mm. in today's society. The wheels will fall off that at some point because after a while, the causes lose their flavour. They become overindulged in and nobody's interested anymore. Something else will come along. Mm. See, when Jesus was arrested and he was awaiting trial, we're talking now about the consequence of adultery or the spirit of adultery and, and so on being shame. This is a story about Peter, the, the Apostle Peter, and it's got a good ending, but he denied Jesus. Jesus was arrested. He was awaiting trial. An angry mob that had turned against Jesus were looking for his friends. And Peter was asked three times by a young girl who was hanging around in the crowd, they were having a barbecue or something, and she said, weren't you with Jesus? I saw you with him at the time of his arrest. She asked him three times, and three times Peter denied knowing him. He got into unbearable shame. He ran and hid. Shame actually makes you hide because you're exposed. It's nakedness. Like the shame of your nakedness will be exposed. That's what God says to these people, the, the ones that he admonished before. So he, he went and hid, right? After Jesus is resurrected, he comes back to earth and he meets with his disciples and he meets up with Peter on the seashore after Peter and the disciples have been fishing and Jesus comes up to Peter and calls him aside and Peter is still feeling the shame and thinking, I'm going to get the sack. He's not even going to talk to me. And Jesus comes up to Peter and says to him three times, 
like there's you three times, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, three times, I love you, Lord. Don't you know I love you? I love you, Lord. And then Jesus confirms Peter three times in his ministry, his apostolic ministry, and says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So he's this three times winner that makes the point. The beautiful thing is that Jesus shows his commitment and faithfulness by forgiving. Mm. And Peter has his shame covered. Mm. Well, Paul, how does this commandment about adultery relate to the next commandment about not stealing? Well, when somebody has begun to devalue the worth of other people's feelings by treating them as objects of self-gratification, the next step is to not value the worth of what they own. You devalue the person, then you devalue their productivity, what they've worked for, what they've aspired to. Uh, what's yours is mine. It's like there's no sense of giving honour or worth to what somebody has given their life to. So now in its obvious form, it's exp expressed as stealing because you just take their stuff. In Commandment 8, you shall not steal. But there's more to Commandment 8 than just that. I think I've hinted at it. You start to devalue the worth of another person, their value, and you live a life of taking. We'll talk about that in the next podcast. I'd like to kind of just finish up getting back to Jesus and Peter because it just keeps coming back to my head when I said that about Jesus forgiving Peter, that Jesus restored Peter's sense of worth and dignity. He did the opposite to what we just said in the Eighth Commandment. <laughs> he said, I'm giving it all back to you, Peter. And Peter was so ashamed. Peter probably thought it was him that put Jesus on the cross. And that shame was a nakedness that can only be clothed or covered by love. And in fact, it says that Peter himself writes about that. That's his epistle. In 1 Peter 4, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. It covers the shame. It's a life-changing revelation to know that Jesus is totally devoted to and committed to us. That covers our shame. He believes in us. And he believes that the fulfilment for our lives can be found through a faithful relationship with him. Mm. And that's the good ending. Mm. Well, it's a great place to end and it's a good place to segue into next week, uh, yeah, which is Commandment 8, yeah. Thou Shalt Not Steal. Yeah. Thank look, you, Scott. Look forward to seeing you then.